The New Testament reading is from Matthew 22, 15 through 46. The parable of the wedding feast, paying taxes to Caesar, rather. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? They all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. But he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your, put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue through our series on the Gospel of, of Matthew. And before we turn to this text, let us, as a church, come together and turn to the Lord in prayer.
God, our Father, we come to you needing your comfort, needing your hope, needing your truth, needing your assurance. All these things, Lord, that only the gospel that we find in your word can provide. I do pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions, to this text, Lord, and that as we go through this passage together, Lord, that we all might taste Christ more sweetly and embrace Christ more fully. We ask this in the name of Christ and the power of the Spirit that you have sent to us. Amen. Well, I think we all feel this, but but in our present moment, all of life can feel very, very compartmentalized. We often feel like our lives at home and at work and at church and a million other places wholly disconnected from each other. But in today's passage, what we find is is a full and complete integration that only Christ Jesus himself can give to the human life. Only Christ, we will see, can pull the many and seemingly disparate parts of our lives together into a beautiful, ordered whole. And as we'll see as we go through this text, Christ does this through the concept of the image of God. And so let's look at today's passage, and let's do so under three headings, each of which focus on this integration that Christ offers and gives us. Fitting together God and Caesar, fitting together truth and love, and fitting together Christ and us. Let's look first at God and Caesar. The Pharisees here, they're they're trying to trap Jesus. They want to entangle him in a question that will leave him condemned any way that he might answer. They send their disciples to ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus says no, then he will be made an enemy of the Roman government. He will be branded a political rebel and punished by the authorities. But if Jesus says yes, then he will be made an enemy of many of his fellow Jewish countrymen who resent the Roman rule. And the Pharisees here, they're ready to either paint Jesus as a rebel or a lackey and to do so for the sake of their own purposes. They think they've asked the perfect question. They think that there is absolutely no way out. But Jesus, who is the very wisdom of God, he's much, much too wise to fall in to this deception and trickery. Jesus replies, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? They said, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. Everyone who was gathered there marveled at the wisdom of Christ. And so we have to learn to do the same. So let's ask ourselves, what kind of answer is this that Jesus gives? Well, what we have here is a question of image and responsibility. As one commentator writes, 
as Caesar's coin bears Caesar's image and belongs to Caesar, so God's human beings bear God's image and belong to God. This helps us understand the logic of the passage, but I I think we can go even further. The coin bears the image of Caesar, but Caesar, being a human being, bears the image of God. And so the coin is an image of a human, and each human is an image of God, and so the coin is an image of an image of God. The coin bears the image of Caesar, and Caesar bears the image of God. What this points to, then, is not a strict separation between public and religious life, between the sacred and the supposedly secular. No, what this points to is a kind of ordering, a kind of integration, a kind of hierarchy that leads us, that takes us up to God, from coin to Caesar to God. I've used this example before, but but I think it's helpful to put things in perspective, to, to understand this ordering. You're at a university lecture, and suppose afterwards you try to conquer your fear of public speaking by publicly asking a question to the lecturer, and you do so only for the sake of conquering your fear of public speaking. You're trying to grow in courage, but only for the sake of courage, not for anything higher than courage. But then imagine this scenario. In this case, after listening humbly and thoughtfully to the speaker, You believe that the speaker, that that, that he said something that is unjust. You have that same deep fear of public speaking, but you force yourself to overcome this fear for the sake of justice. You exercise your courage, and you come to the mic, and you ask a probing question for the sake of justice. And this is true courage because it is ordered to justice. In the second case, courage is the proximate end, and justice is the ultimate end. Courage is the road, so to speak, and justice is the destination. We don't need to choose here between courage and justice. Instead, we practice courage in order to practice justice. And true courage, just is rightly ordered to justice. And this scheme maps well onto the coin and Caesar. We use our resources for the good of public life, for the flourishing of our society. We use the coin for the sake of of Caesar, for the sake of the peace and stability of our present political and public situation. But we must also remember that no earthly society or government should ever be confused with God, nor can any earthly kingdom or country ever establish the perfect love and justice of the kingdom of God. Courage must be ordered to justice, And in a similar pattern, our coins, our earthly resources must be ordered to Caesar, working for justice, working for goodness in our own imperfect societies. And so, yes, we pay taxes as Paul encourages us to do in Romans 13, and we do so for the good of the city. We coach youth sports, we join school boards, we join other boards, we vote, we help with after-school programs, we volunteer, we care for the widow and the orphan, we welcome the sojourner, we seek to help the struggling food banks right here in Iowa City, we seek to serve the city and the public good in a million different ways. We love and serve our city and country with a properly ordered love and service. 
And if we don't, we should be asking ourselves, are we rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's? I'm pointing to myself here as much as anyone else. And so yes, that does mean, however, that properly honoring Caesar will mean we have to push back against Caesar because all that is Caesar's belongs to God. If Caesar seeks to place himself against God, we must follow God and not Caesar. Jesus himself will be crucified in a state-sanctioned execution. And so here's the rub. Here's the tension that the Christian must live in in being in but not of the world. If you find yourself driven to cynicism and apathy and inaction about our present civic society, then you're not rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. But if every new day of headlines throws you into fits of rage or terror or triumphalism, then you are rendering to Caesar what is God's. You are expecting from Caesar what only God can do. So let's go back then to our example of ordering courage to justice, right? In that example, courage was the proximate end, justice was the ultimate end, courage was the road, justice was the destination. However, the Christian is called to go even further here. In the Christian understanding, both courage and justice are proximate ends. They are two points on a path to a further destination. Courage and justice must be ordered to the love of God. We must conquer our fears with courage to be just. We must seek to be just because we love God. Again, the coin bears the image of Caesar, and Caesar bears the image of the coin. And so the coin bears an image of an image of God. The coin is ordered to Caesar, and Caesar is ordered to God. Courage is ordered to justice, and justice is ordered to the love of God. And Jesus stresses the importance of ordering everything, absolutely everything, to the love of God in today's passage. Again, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus tells us all of the law is aiming at loving God with our whole being and loving our neighbor as ourself. Courage is ordered to justice, and both are aimed at loving God with all of our being. The coin is ordered to Caesar, and Caesar is ordered to God. Again, we don't have two realms, the political and the religious, the sacred and the supposedly secular, the realm of Caesar and the realm of God. No, no. All things are properly ordered to God in the love of God. We have the goods of this world, like the coins that fill our bank accounts. We have our neighbors and the civil societies that hold us together. And most importantly, we have our great God. And we have them in that order. So then, as Jesus tells us, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And what that means is that for the Christian, everything is a service to God. Everything is theological. Everything is worship. Everything is integrated. 
And that brings us to the second thing that Christ helps us fit together, truth and love. Christ not only works to fit together our relationship between Caesar and God, he also works to integrate, to fit together something deep within ourselves, truth and love. Look at what the disciples of the Pharisees say when they come to Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. They say these words, but they don't mean these words. And Christ knows this. Christ says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Christ knows that they are lying. Christ knows that they are saying words that they don't mean. But here's the irony. They are actually speaking the truth. Yes, Jesus does truly teach the way of God, and yes, he never falls victim to partiality or flattery. He gives children and blind beggars the very same focus and attention that he gives to the various, very highest rulers in his society. The disciples are speaking the truth, but they do not love the truth. They don't love the words that they're speaking. St. Augustine, he, he tells us that we cannot understand Scripture if we cannot use Scripture to love God and neighbor. And again, right, those are the two commandments that Jesus calls us to. In the case of the Pharisees, they speak truthfully about Christ, but they can't actually use these true words about Christ to love Christ. And Christ is both human and God. He's both our neighbor and our Lord. And so to fail to love Christ just is to reject the two great commandments. The commandments of loving God and neighbor. And as both Jesus and Augustine tell us, this love for Christ, that's what scripture is for. If you used a computer as a doorstop because you thought that is what the computer is for, I think it's fair to say that you wouldn't actually understand what a computer is. In the same way, if we are not using the words of Scripture to build up our love of God and neighbor, which is what Scripture is for, then strictly speaking, we don't understand it. So before anything else, this is a matter of love. And this matter of love is a matter of the Holy Spirit. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Sure, all of us can utter the words Jesus is Lord, just like anyone can utter the words of the Pharisees that they say about Jesus when they introduce this question. But can we use these true words about Jesus to confess Jesus? Can you mean Jesus is Lord? Can you say Jesus is Lord as an act of love to God? If not, then we don't understand this truth. But as Paul tells us, it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can say Jesus is Lord and mean it. Only by the Holy Spirit can we love this truth. For instance, there are many times in Scripture where even demons identify Jesus as the Son of God. 
But they don't use these words as acts of confession. They use these words to mock Jesus or to spew hate upon Jesus. They don't love Jesus, and so they cannot confess Jesus. What's the problem? Well, there's a disconnect here between truth and love. The Pharisees and even the demons in this case, they speak truly, but they don't love the truth that they speak. They speak the truth of Christ, but they don't love the truth of Christ. It's only by the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us, that we can confess Christ, that we can love and praise and glorify Christ as we say, Jesus is Lord. And this, too, points us to the image of God. In Genesis 1, we read about humanity's creation. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. So please note two things about that description. First, God here speaks of our image. Secondly, God directly connects this image to humanity's dominion and rule of stewardship over creation. We'll we'll hit the second point in the next section, but, but right now I want us to look at that phrase, let's make man in our image. There are a range of interpretations of of why God speaks in the plural form here, why he says, let us, instead of let me, and why he says, our image, instead of my image. Some interpreters believe that God is speaking to a kind of of heavenly council full of angelic beings. Some think he's he's using the royal we by which a king or ruler uh, speaks on behalf of all of his people. But I still think that the best interpretation here is the classic Christian interpretation, which tells us he's speaking as the triune God. God exists as three persons in one nature. And he is saying our image because what is being referred to is the triune communion of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And so you ask... Okay, but what in the world does that have to do with our speech and integrating truth and love? Well, bear with me, and Augustine is again helpful here. He tells us two things. In the act of salvation, God reveals both who he is and who we are. How does God save us? God sends us his Son, Christ Jesus, who is the Logos, the Word, the very truth of God. How does God save us? He sends his Spirit, the bond of delight that unites the Father and Son, the love that the Father and Son have shared eternally. God sends us the very love of God. How does God save us? He sends us his word, the very truth of God, and he sends us his spirit, the very love of God. In this, God reveals to us that he is triune. He reveals himself to us as he sends his word and his love to save us. But this also reveals us to ourselves. We realize that we are creatures who have erred and fallen in truth because God sends his own truth to save us. We realize that we are creatures who have erred and fallen in love, failed in love, 
because God sends his own love to save us. God made us in his own triune image. He is the God who communes eternally with himself in truth and love. And we are creatures who are called to receive this truth and love of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or better put, we are creatures that are meant to love the truth of God with the love of God. We are called to love and desire Christ, who is the truth of God, by way of the Holy Spirit, who is the love of God. This is the triune image that we bear as creatures made to love the truth of God, who is Christ. So let's come back to Paul's statement. Again, he tells us no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. To say Jesus is Lord is to utter the truth of God. But to say this with love, to say this in the love of the Holy Spirit, by the love who is the Holy Spirit, this is to confess Christ. We are then caught up into God's own triune life, loving Christ, the truth, with divine love itself. We find ourselves doing the very thing that God does eternally, Uh, Puritan theologian John Owen, he puts it like this. Nothing renders us so like God than as our love unto Jesus Christ. We serve the triune God who knows and loves himself perfectly in eternal communion. And we, humans, we image him as we too know and love him with the truth and love that he pours into our hearts. And again, this call to love the truth of Christ, well, it comes together in the two great commandments. Do you want to love the truth? Learn to love your neighbor as yourself in loving the humanity of Christ. Learn to love God by loving the divinity of Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In loving Christ, we love the neighbor who has given all of himself to us. In loving Christ, we love the God who has given all of himself to us. To love the truth of Christ with the love of the Holy Spirit just is to carry out the two great commandments. And so unlike the Pharisees, let us, by the love of the Holy Spirit, love the truth of Christ that we speak. Let us know and love Christ Or, in Augustine's terms, let us actually understand Christ. And so we have to ask, how is it that we are actually using our words? God the Father eternally speaks the word of truth, who is Christ, and he loves the word he speaks in the love of the Holy Spirit. As bearers of God's image, are we speaking the truth of Christ and loving the truth that we speak? Earlier, we looked at all of life being an integrated act of worship. In the same way, is everything that we're saying confessing Christ? Is it speaking the truth of Christ and loving that truth? Owen Barfield once said about his good friend C.S. Lewis, somehow what he thought about everything was secretly present in what he said about anything. Talk about an integrated person. And so we have to ask ourselves, Is Christ present, however implicitly or explicitly, in everything that we say? Are we using our words to confess Christ? Are we explicitly acknowledging Christ as God and Savior 
to both the neighbor and to Caesar? Are we speaking words of forgiveness? If we don't forgive and seek forgiveness and actively seek out reconciliation for relationships that are broken, then we are denying the truth that God himself has forgiven and reconciled us to him in Christ Jesus. We are failing to integrate the speech of our lives into the person and work of Christ. Are we as a church speaking comfort and consolation to those who are hurting? When we console, we love the truth of Christ. The great high priest who has himself experienced all the deepest misery of this world and so can pray for us in the deepest empathy. Are we confessing our sins? When we confess our sins, we love the truth of Christ. The truth that he has borne the guilt and shame for all of our sins so that we can share our struggles with sin to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we encouraging one another in Christ? When we encourage, we love the truth that Christ has won for us the greatest of all hopes, the resurrection of the dead, a hope that nothing in this world can take away. Really ask yourself, when was the last time that I spoke words like this to another? These words... They're a key way that we strengthen our confession of Christ. These words are practices of speech that set our hearts on fire for Christ. They're words, they're practices that help us match our hearts with our lips. Somehow what we think about Christ must be present in what we say about anything. And also on this point, pray the Psalms. While God primarily speaks to us in the rest of Scripture, in the Psalms, God speaks for us. God gives us the very truth that we are to pray back to God. Pray the Psalter and ask that the Spirit would captivate your heart with love for the truths that you're praying in each of these Psalms. And in the Psalms, here too we meet Christ. God condescends us condescends to us in the Psalms to give us the very words to speak back to him. Think about that. God stands in our place before God in the Psalms. And this is the very logic of Christ. And so as we pray the Psalms, let us learn to love that truth. But of course, this also means that we must have knowledge of Christ. And this brings us to the Sadducees. And then we see a lack of knowledge that cannot help but produce a lack of love. In this case, the Sadducees try to dismiss the truth of the resurrection because they assume that there's no way that marriage can last into the resurrection. Which man will this woman be married to, given the fact that she's been widowed seven times? Who will she be married to in the resurrection of the dead? Recall that earlier in Matthew 19, Jesus points out that marriage between a man and a woman, it it points us back to the goodness of creation. In a similar way here, Jesus shows us that singleness, it points forward to the goodness of the resurrection, that day in which the church will be fully embraced by its true bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And what that means is that in the church, in both the married life and the single life, we get the two modes of life 
that actually define the history of God's people. In the married life, we taste the life of Eden, of man and woman joined together and commanded to be fruitful. In the single life, we taste the life of the resurrection, wherein we are no longer given in marriage, but feast with Christ Jesus himself at the wedding supper of the Lamb. But even this, this truth, this isn't the deepest problem with the Sadducees. This is just what they put forward. It's a kind of clever argument. It's meant to justify their lack of knowledge. As Christ tells them quite plainly, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They don't know the truth of God that's revealed in the scriptures. And since they don't know the truth of God, how can they love the truth of God? They don't know that God is powerful to raise the dead. And so they don't know who God is. As Jesus tells them, God is the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they are not dead. They are alive now, awaiting the great hope of the resurrection. And we too must know and love the truth of God. In this case, the power of God who is powerful to raise the dead. And in all of these things, again, we are called to look to the truth of Christ. And that brings us to our third and final point, fitting together Christ in us. The last part of this passage presents us directly with the identity of Christ, and it does so in a way that builds on everything that came before. What has Christ so far helped us to fit together? God and Caesar truth, and love, and both of these point us back to the image of God. Recall that in Genesis 1, the image of God is linked directly to humanity's rule over and stewardship of creation. Note, too, that God speaks of all humans as bearing God's image. And this is wholly unique. Other ancient cultures, they may have spoken about the image of God, but it was limited only to the kings, only to the very top persons in that society. They alone were the visible images of some deity. They alone stood in the deity's place before God's people. But not here. Genesis tells us that all human beings bear the image of God. That is a beautiful, beautiful truth. And so there's a kingship that comes naturally with being human. And this issue of kingship is brought to a head in the final part of today's passage. Christ asks about the identity of the Christ, the Messiah, the long-expected king of God's people. And Christ quotes from Psalm 110, which is a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And after quoting this, Jesus asks, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? David was the great king of Israel. We all bear the kingly image of God, but David, above all other image bearers, was the most exalted king over God's people in the Old Testament. David was the closest king, we might say, the closest to Caesar actually rendering God what is God's. But even here, this Caesar, this king that was David, he also ruled with injustice that set him against God. 
We find in David horrible examples of moral failure and tragic damage to his people, damage that we should lament. Even here, we find Caesar against God. Even here in the rule of Israel's greatest king, we find Caesar not rendering to God the things that are God, God's. But David, he knows that another greater king is coming. And so he can address the son of David who will come from his own line as Lord. Yes, you are my son, but you are also my Lord. And so Christ asks, what do you think about the Christ? Who is he? Yes, according to the flesh, the Christ is the son of David. But Christ is not only human, but also God. According to his divinity, the Christ is the Son of God, and so he is David's Lord, and so he is our Lord. He's the God-man. He is Caesar, wholly rendering to God what is God's. He's the perfect image of God, the perfect human king in submission to God. That's because he is the king that is both God and Caesar. He is Caesar as Caesar should be. He's the perfect reconciliation of God and Caesar, of divinity and humanity. He's the very integration that we seek, which no earthly kingdom or country can provide. Christ is the perfect image of God's kingly rule. But we can say more. Again, Jesus is God. He is the Logos, the word of truth. He is the truth, begotten by the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit. And so he is the beautiful truth of God that we are called to love. But we ask, how is it that we can love this truth? We are all David. We have all failed to love this truth and to image the triune God. Deep down, we know that we have all failed to act with the love of God in neighbor, We have all failed to enact the kingly rule of stewardship that God has called us to. And so we come to our great king, to our Lord, as marred images, as broken images, as cracked statues. We come to God as Caesars who have set themselves against God. We come to our great king and Lord as rebels. And so... We find here a beautiful truth, but also the truth of our condemnation. But we have to keep reading in Psalm 10, which is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. David goes on to say of his coming Lord, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, like the mysterious figure of Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, he The coming Lord is both king and priest. As a king, he will rule his people, and as a priest, he will mediate for his people. As a king, he will image God before his people, and as a priest, he will image his people before God. As a priest, he will take the sins of his people upon himself and present to God on their behalf his own perfect life of love to God and neighbor. He will present his own perfect enactment of the image of God, and this he does on the priestly throne of the cross. 
And what this means is that Christ alone integrates all of our lives. He fits it all together. Think about it like this. In all that we do here on earth, we point to Christ. He is our king. He is the coming Caesar who will one day set the whole world right. In all that we do here and now, let us point to Christ, our great king. However, it's not just before our fellow humans that we point to Christ. Yes, he's our king. He perfectly images God before his people, but he's also our priest. He's the perfect image of us before God. And so ask yourself, standing before Christ on his return, which is something that all of us in this room, all of us will one day do, when you stand before the throne of the king, what will be your first impulse? Will you make excuses for all the times that you failed to live out your calling? Will you offer reasons for all the things you didn't do but you should have done? Or will you stand there with boldness and with confidence and simply point to Christ, your great high priest? Before God, we must also point to Christ, who is our very righteousness. This is the truth of Christ that we love. Whether before humanity or God in all that we do, let us integrate all the things of our lives by pointing to Christ, our kingly priest and our priestly king. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for Christ, who is our priest and king. Thank you for all that he has done for us. Let us look to him in all things, Lord. Give us glad and grateful hearts, wholly assured in the promise of hope that he has delivered to us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.